Did everyone hear the question? Oh, the question is, what is the balancing factor for tranquility? Energy. Um, <coughs> if you look at the factors of enlightenment, the energizing factors of enlightenment are investigation, energy, and joy. And then the tranquilizing factors are calm, concentration, and equanimity. You know, so those are the tranquilizing, energizing. With, with concentration, if you've, you know, you've heard it described, I think, many times and experienced it many times, we call it sinking mind, where you feel like you're really with something, like the breath or a sound, and then you nod, <laughs> and you feel like you were really there, but you lose it. That's because the concentration and tranquility are there, but there's not enough energy to sustain the connecting. Uh, and so sometimes it's helpful to see if you can bring some investigation in. And if, uh, if you're experiencing it over time, I recommend uh, doing some faster walking. The question is around uh, craving mind. He, he says to himself, uh, may I be strong and healthy before each sitting. Um, I'm wondering if that's craving mind. You can wish, may I be strong and healthy for yourself with or without craving mind. And I think that that's the whole uh, key to understanding the metta, actually, or any of the of Brahma Viharas is um, when, when, the, when we're really unconditionally wishing it, there's no craving. It's just a wish. There's no attachment to the result. Um, and, and that's unconditional. And I, can, I know many times where you'll be doing the anything like that, may I be happy, you know, and one's really not happy, but one's wishing it, and there is, there's a condition on it. Uh, so it, it doesn't mean we don't do it if there's some attachment in it. It's that you'd notice the attachment and understand that that wasn't conditional. I wouldn't necessarily stop. If you notice that you're feeling attachment with that wish, you might drop it and then, and then see if you can experience the craving. And in this case, in Vipassana, you wouldn't try to get rid of the craving. You'd step back and just let that, let that um, attachment be there and then see if you can... Uh, see it come and go, or, or know there's a deeper place than that. It's all, it's purifying. <laughs> yeah, that's great, yeah. Hmm.
The question is around, she says a small self has emerged around three years old that doesn't, says, the voice says, I don't want to do this, and she just wants to curl up in bed. Um, if you were just coming into the course, I'd have one answer, you know, which would be very different than the answer now. I mean, if when that comes up after six weeks, it's very different than when you first get here. Um, I don't know if you've tried compassion. I started doing that and just in the last Mm-hmm. And what happens when you do that? Um, well, I, I, it's pretty strong when I do that for myself. It's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, when I'm doing Vipassana, I just do Vipassana when I do my back. There's a bunch of different things I have to say. One is that um, I feel like I have that experience at times when there's a lot of dukkha happening in my practice. And it, like at this point, the, for the people that are here for six weeks, we hit these places where we, it's like hitting the wall. And it, sometimes it's called the rolling up the mat stage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but sometimes it's helpful to actually look back and see if you've gone through anything difficult or it could be that something's coming up that's difficult and we hit this enormous resistance and sometimes it can feel young um, but I remember many times kind of going into my bed and just kind of pulling the head, covers over my head and just, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, it's just, it's... It's either sometimes it's fear of what I think is coming or it's a resistance that's already there. Uh, and it's okay, you know, it's like one of the great things about Anicca <laughs> is that these places change as well. And whether you actually roll up in a ball and let that storm pass, you know, of resistance or not, I think um, compassion really helps. Um, one of the things that's really hard to distinguish is the difference between dukkha and the aversion to it. And often that, that place where you don't want to do it anymore often has that quality of aversion to the dukkha of existence. So look for the aversion you know, to the vulnerability. Uh, and even look for the aversion to this place because it's a place that comes up in practice. Uh, and it's possible to go through it. I used to bring a stuffed animal with me on my retreats, and whenever I hit this place, I used to put sunglasses on her, and put her on a chaise lounge, and just <laughs> just have her kind of have a vacation. <laughs> it went, and I would just keep doing walking and sitting, and I'd look at her, and it would really just... <laughs> it would be fun, you know. <laughs> 
I think, well, at least somebody's having a It might be to be here. This is something that has come up a lot for me in my practice. I used to have to have somebody come in my room and get me up. <laughs> so I know this one well. Getting up and going outside and walking usually really helps when you're in that space. I mean, if anything's going to help it. Uh, getting up and moving, going outside, you know, especially when the sun's out and it's kind of uh, inspiring. It's bright, it's light. Uh, try to do something, you know, even if it would be getting up and immediately feeding the birds and doing it's something that you like in, in being here. Um, and sometimes it's just, I wake up with that, usually. That's something karmic for me, where I wake up and I don't want to be here. And if I get into it, it just, it just gets stronger and stronger. And, it, you know, if I get up and I do something like something that I like, like feeding the birds or walking, it shifts that space. That's an, that's an immediate something to do. But it is our ambivalence about being here in existence, you know, I don't want to be here is as strong as I want to be here. Aversion, attachment. And that I, I don't want to be here is coming up is fine. There's a tendency to think that we have to get rid of that or talk ourselves out of it. And we don't. It's just, it's just a thought. I want to be here is just a thought. It's uh, attachment to existence or non-existence. You know, they're just two sides of a coin. Uh, and learning how to... Um, be okay with that that swing of wanting to be here, not wanting to be here, and our ambivalence around it is fine because we can just see that they're just thoughts. It's hard to see that that's just a thought when you're lying in bed. <laughs> it's easier if you can get some energy with it. Uh, and I would, for for the question that you had, there are times when it's okay to just curl up um, and go into that because it by going into it with some mindfulness, one will um, see it clearly. It's just not wanting to be here, and, it, and it's okay. Mm. Good questions. You sound great. <laughs> it's it's the other side. Yeah. It's a very protected place. It's, uh, comes up a lot. So, have a good day. Mm.
Some people find it helpful to anchor the attention in the present moment at the beginning of the sitting by just listening to the different sounds appearing and disappearing in a very open field of awareness. You might notice that there's nothing that you have to do with the sounds except to just listen to them and notice them appear, live their life out, and disappear. And out of that very open, receptive awareness, beginning to notice the movement of the breath, still from that open awareness, just letting the movement of the breath come to your attention. It's like listening to sound, but listening for the movement of the breath. Each breath is new, is alive. Seeing if you can notice a whole in-breath or rising movement at a time, a whole out-breath or falling movement at a time. At times you might bring your attention more closely to the movement, noticing what it is that's moving, what it is that we call my breath, 
noticing how it changes. And just like you noticed with the sound, there's nothing that we have to do with the breath, but notice it appearing, disappearing, just as it is. There are times when one feels that the attention is more focused, more relaxed, less scattered by anchoring the attention. And at times, let the attention explore what is predominant in one's moment-to-moment experience. body sensations, sounds, moods, emotions, thoughts, whatever calls the attention, seeing if you can have a relationship with whatever is happening, like you would with the sound or the breath. There's nothing that you have to do with anything that appears. No need to get rid of anything. But just to notice life as it's moving. And especially with thinking, remembering that there's no need to struggle with the thought process itself. It's possible to just settle back and notice thinking, just noticing that thinking is happening without getting lost in the storyline or content of the thinking. And if you notice that the attention in the present moment is lost in thinking, make a soft mental note of thinking and then anchor the attention again by experiencing as fully as you can the movement of the breath.
seeing if you can just relax and allow and accept whatever it is that appears because it has appeared getting out of the way and just let life reveal itself moment by moment Well, if you do believe in rebirth, then uh, it's really easy in a way because one can send it to whatever form this person is in. You know, that the being <laughs> uh, that you remembered won't be in the same form, but there is a way that you can send metta or c compassion to someone if they died before. Uh, you can also go back to a memory and uh, in some ways, on one level of reality, there really isn't any past or future. I mean, there's just now, but the past and future is included. Uh, I had a teacher named Deepama who was from India and a great, great teacher, and she used to uh, go back to the time of the Buddha and listen to his sermons. So, <laughs> uh, I asked her how she did that, <laughs> just in case. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and she said that she went back mind moment by mind moment through all her lifetimes. And that takes a little bit of concentration. <laughs> uh, and so it, I think that you can, you know, as you know, memories come up and whether somebody has died or not, there's a way in which I don't think it matters if you send it to the past or the, someone in the present. It's really that energy of sending the compassion that matters. You know, what that does for you and what that energy that goes out to that person does. It, that per, you know, it'll go out there, basically. It's not wasted. <laughs> you were speaking about the consciousness and mindfulness of it. What is it to not be conscious? Well, sleep is a good one. I mean, you know, in dreams that we can have some consciousness if we remember. Uh, basically, Consciousness is appearing and disappearing every moment. I mean, consciousness is there um, every moment that we're alive. Uh, 
as you can as you can see, there might be ten moments in sitting where thinking might be happening, and so consciousness is happening, but we're not mindful of it. We're not aware of it. And so that's how you can start to see the difference between mindfulness and consciousness, where consciousness is happening every moment, but being aware that thinking is happening is the mindfulness. Do you see the difference? I see that I don't think that... <laughs> I mean, it depends on one's view of, of death, um, but I think at once at death consciousness, there's a rebirth consciousness. So I, I think that consciousness tends to be rolling along. Uh, there is that sense of enlightenment, which is a, is a moment where the awareness is really fully here. It's so fully here that there's a way in which... <laughs> You know that nothing happens there, and there's a uh, there's a but consciousness does take that enlightenment moment as an object. So I don't I don't see where there ever isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we lose things like when we sleep or dream. Anytime we dream, there's no body consciousness. I think. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of a well, consciousness. Motivated. Yeah. Consciousness. There's hearing consciousness. Thinking, touching, smelling, you know, the, the six sense doors, the consciousness can happen at any of the six sense doors. And so when we're sleeping, definitely we don't usually have body consciousness, uh, but there can be thinking. Yeah, yeah. right, right. It's a fun question. <laughs> These are good questions to help one to investigate, too. I mean, any question that really helps one, you know, well, it's an answer that I can give, but really it's something to investigate for yourself. You said it already once, but I need to hear it again. Uh, you once said that noises, unpleasant noises, can be way to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Um, it's like the word weed, you know, for a plant. It's like we have this uh, way in which we call certain plants plants and certain plants weeds, which will infer that the weeds are sort of lesser uh, or that we don't really value them. Noise has that same quality that, uh, <clears throat> I mean, we tend to hear something really pleasant and we wouldn't necessarily call that a noise. Uh, but noise tends to be the, uh, the the sounds that we don't want. Weeds tend to be the plants that we don't care about or want. 
so that's one thing, just to look at that word. And then um, there's two ways in which sounds are heaven and hell for me. One is that uh, it's a sense store that I've learned a lot about understanding and freedom with. Uh, so that I said that it 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 had an element of hell, <laughs> hell as well as heaven, and that the, you know the pleasant sounds would be so wonderful for me, and the noises would be so horrific. Uh, the aversion to the unpleasant sounds was so hellish, and the attachment to the the pleasant was so heavenly. And then I started to see that I was really in prison. And in all of a lot of my understanding and practice initially came from uh, this this difficulty of not being able to control, you know, the other monks. You know, <laughs> it's like these sounds. Often the sounds I didn't like the most were the sounds that I thought human beings shouldn't be making. You know, those tend to be the most difficult ones. Uh, to, to deal with because we think that that person should be controlling themselves and then we get angry and uh, the whole bit. Um, that ability to watch oneself go through that unpleasant aversion over and over again, being able to accept that the aversion happens, to allow that the aversion happens, opening to that. Um, There'll be times, not every time, but it's like working with physical pain is similar, where you might not be able to open to a physical pain over and over and over, and then at some point there's enough mindfulness and enough energy to accept that unpleasantness. That's really heaven. You know, that, that's like, that's a, it's a huge accomplishment when we, it, because the ego, um, has let go. You know, it's our controlling nature has let go. That sense of being separate has let go. Anything unpleasant that we're opening to tends to erode the ego because all our instincts is to go against that. All our instincts are to control. And that's, you know, that's, that's suffering. Uh, this doesn't come quick or easy. And it, it's like the hardest part is that you might have that ability to do that for an hour. And then maybe the energy goes down and the next sitting one has this resistance again. And that's, it's frustrating. Uh, but over time one just starts to accept that there are times when one resists and that that's okay. There's a, that's really critical that, that you can be able to be in the, you know, wherever you're sitting and that one can accept that it is noise for you at that moment, that it, there is aversion. Um, being able to accept aversion and attachment when they're happening and to allow them, it's like that's what melts the ice. And then there are times when the equanimity the being okay with whatever's happening and the mindfulness are pure enough and that we, we, we open and that moment when we let go and there's no aversion is a moment of freedom. That's the, that's the heaven. I, ha I had a time in this hall once when, when I first sat with Upandita where uh, Upandita had us writing um, 
descriptions of our sittings, but it was only supposed to be a little bit and not during the meditation. And this woman next to me was writing all during the sittings, like her experiences, you know, sitting after sitting. And Upandita said that we had to sit in the hall for a month before we went to our rooms to sit. And so I'm sitting next to this woman and she wrote with her pencil, <laughs> not even a ballpoint pen, which would have been much quieter, but it was a pe- kind of scratchy <laughs> pencil, just loud enough, you know, that it was just, and I never knew when she was going to pick it up, you know, that unpredictability. <laughs> You never know when that door, door is going to slam. If it was predictable, it would be easier. Uh, <laughs> and so, we, you know, we'd be sitting there and she'd pick up her pencil and we'd be like, no! <laughs> and then it got to the point where I'd be sitting in the hall and I'd see her come. Like, it wasn't even, it was just the visuals at that point. I'd see her come in the anticipation of the aversion. Sweat would start pouring down like, body, really, it was, this is hell, you know. (laughs) And I've been through that zillions of times where just even the anticipation of the sound is is just terrible. Uh, And then it was learning how to deal with that anticipation, (laughs) dealing with the unpredictability. Uh, And then finally being able to bring my attention to that scratchy sound. And, you know, the amount of suffering that I had around that little bit of sound was extraordinary. I mean, I suffered so much over that. It was, and, and then I kept thinking, if anyone asked me how my retreat was out in the world, and, you know, and I said, there was this sound of this pencil. <laughs> you know, you know, and I didn't think I was going to make it through the retreat. You know, they'd lock me away, you know. Any, <laughs> anything that really... You know, just picture going out there and, say, and saying, you know, I couldn't deal with this retreat, that somebody kept slamming the door. I mean, <laughs> it just, it doesn't cut the mustard out in the world. But here, everyone can understand, you know, that there's that aversion, that's the tangle, the aversion that we can't control when the unpleasant is going to happen. And that's dukkha. That's what I was talking about last night. We can't you know, there are some things we can control, but basically there's not that much. And learning how to open to that. So good luck. <laughs> Rather than a talk, and then tomorrow night will be the talk. Do you have any questions this morning? Can you speak a little louder, please?
And so I was wondering what the relationship is there. And also then, when Ernie becomes so predominant that way, it almost seems like I should know, know him because I've started so much. With, with any kind of concentration, there's control. Uh, so that when you decide to focus on something, that choice um, ignores everything else that's happening. So if you make a choice to be with a breath, that choice, uh, you, you know, you focus on one thing and ignore everything else. Um, in the Vipassana meditation, you're trying to get just enough concentration, meaning that when you start, usually you're, you do try to focus on one thing, whether you're sitting or walking or anything, eating. You do try to, you make a decision to tend to focus on one thing, uh, to still the mind. Uh, because the opposite of that, the opposite which is no control, just letting whatever happens, happens, let whatever in, in, uh, is hard to do. You really need a lot of stillness of mind to let go of control, and it's, sometimes it's called choiceless awareness, where you let go of control and just see what happens. There might be a sound, a breath, a body sensation, and yeah, when you're walking, <laughs> it's more intense outside. There's much more intensity, but any time, sitting, walking, any moment, uh, there are many things that can happen. It's uh, uh, <laughs> an ocean of bombardment, <laughs> basically. Uh, so, uh, um, I recommend really being okay with uh, the amount that you need to focus, uh, because that that gives you the strength eventually to let go of control. Uh, and if you're actually going for a walk. I don't know if it's necessary to note noting. You might note confusion if it's getting too much. Uh, the idea behind noting is noticing. And if it's getting too much, I would just kind of maybe note noticing, noticing, just in a quiet, uh, and decide whether to really focus on one thing or just, or just maybe let go a little bit. Do you have a <laughs> what, what's happening with what you think of as anxiety and what's happening with what you think is fear? You, you, can't, you can't just... Well, what are you experiencing when that's happening?
Well, as long as we don't get ang- anxious about whether it's fear or anxiety, is a good sign. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it too much weight. Whether it's you know, anxiety has. I think of them both as fear. I think anxiety uh, tends to be. It's interesting when you describe the wary, because I've seen myself have a moment of fear, and not notice it. And then the fear can latch on to anything. And usually it will latch on to some future, you know, uh, event. And that's, <clears throat> it's thinking. And it, it is, when, it, when I do that, I think of it more as anxiety, as, a, um, as panic or where, uh, terror or intense fear. It's kind of a mild fear. That's how I think of anxiety. One of the things I used to do here, I mean, with <laughs> I really saw the fear latch onto anything. You know how laundry is a big day here. You know, getting, <laughs> having to bring your laundry down and then pick it up. It's like you know, <laughs> you you know, you barely make it through a day. You know, <laughs> it's it's so busy that day. You know, <laughs> and I used to go through this whole thing around the laundry. You know, just you know, the day before, I could feel like the busyness start to start. You know. <laughs> You know, the sign gets put up and it's like already I'm planning. And I would start planning when I was going to put my laundry down there. You know, it's just like, oh, insane. Just, you know, over and over my mind would get caught in, you know, should I bring it down at 3 o'clock, <laughs> at 4 o'clock, before breakfast. I mean, it was just like over and over and over again. And then I'd worry about <laughs> if I'm going to lose some socks, you know, or some... <laughs> Or some underwear, and well, should I hand wash the underwear because they might not, I might not get it back? Or it was incredible, over and over and over and over. And I wouldn't see that <clears throat> it didn't matter, you know, what I was worrying about. <clears throat> With anxiety, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that it's latching onto something. <clears throat> and here, there's not that much it can latch onto. <laughs> <laughs> so I would expand this thing around the laundry into this huge, you know, horrible, <laughs> fearsome thing. It was, and it's funny when you're out of it, you know. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so I think of all of that in the range of anxiety, but, you know, I used to call it fear attack number 2,222. <laughs> And what matters is that you can bring your attention out of the thinking, you know, all that projection into the future and really feel the fluttering in your stomach, you know, to note fear, to note anxiety, and to see if you can be with that experience. Because the projection is really the avoidance of experiencing the fear or the anxiety.
Don't forget to take one step at a time. It's time for walking. What quality or or series of qualities is it that uh, allows us to move from being really absorbed in our thoughts or our fantasies into a more neutral or disengaged kind of awareness? If you use the image of driving a car, as you did a couple of weeks ago, um, I feel as if often in my meditation I've got, you know, the, the throttles all the way forward and I'm in sort of fantasy mode or thought mode. And then I, can, I can't really, I can touch the, the clutch, you know, and just touch the breath or touch my body, but I can't really put it all the way in because I, I really <clears throat> seem to fundamentally believe that the thought or the fantasy is, is really more real than, than what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Did everyone hear? Okay. Um, what is it that allows us to step in the clutch all the way? <laughs> um, I think grounding the attention with the body really helps so that when one, when one notices the fantasy, to be able to at least step in the clutch enough to feel what one's body feels like. Um, and there's a lot going on usually underneath fantasy. You know, again, like I was saying last night, we're going into the deeper hidden layers uh, on a longer retreat. So what is interesting to explore is what is it that is um, fueling like gasoline, what is it that's fueling that grabbing onto those thoughts? And sometimes it can just be merely wanting, you know, wanting. And I try to feel that feeling of grabbing on in the body, not necessarily um, getting involved in more thinking about it. Uh, and it, that uh, it's usually not pleasant. There's a way in which. Uh, I think we can get in touch with our intention to really want to be touched by the universe. You know, we're here. Uh, and the idea behind the practice is that anytime there's attachment or aversion or confusion, we're not in touch with this uh, amazing incarnation here. Uh, and I think that when we're somewhat clear, we, we feel like, no, we don't really want to get so lost in fantasy because it isn't real. Uh, but when, when you're sitting here day after day after day, I think there'll be a preference for something, you know, some other movie other than the neutrality of the breath. So, so it's like, how do we relate to neutrality? For me, I preferred, for many years, I would prefer the intensity of aversion and attachment rather than neutrality. In some ways, I was more afraid of neutrality than I was of unpleasant. You know, so that, it's all stuff to explore. Sometimes if you look at a fantasy and you come back to the body and really try to feel what's underneath that, it could be that we're avoiding the experience of loneliness. 
You know, mostly getting lost in fantasy is either avoiding boredom or avoiding a loneliness or avoiding something. Uh, it could be avoiding neutrality. Uh, stepping in the clutch is really trying to anchor with something that would hold our attention. Body, hearing, um, sound, uh, sometimes doing compassion or metta where there'd be some juice some, somewhere. Any, you know, even opening your eyes and going, you know, do, do, do I want to be here? <laughs> and then sometimes um, it's no. No, I don't want to be here. That's what's underneath it. And you go off. Uh, at some point, usually, say you gave your mind a huge pasture and you said, okay, I'm just going to let myself do that. I bet at some point that fantasy would become so boring. Usually that's what happened to me over time where I would let myself do it. After a while, I had, you know, I have a pretty good imagination, you know, but what, <laughs> what I could think up and get involved with, after a while, it would be so boring. You know, and that's, that's another technique. <laughs> just, you can just... <laughs> I mean, you will. You'll eventually get so sick of your own mind. I mean, and, and that's partly what we do. And, and so the question is, are you sick enough of it? <laughs> and so at some point... That you will. You'll, you'll want to be here again. So there's the not wanting to be here, there's the wanting to be here. Uh, and there are many times where, you know, why would you want to be here? Uh, but the problem is that we're here. <laughs> and there's that deeper level of uh, when the energy is there, when you ask what the conditions are, when the energy and the mindfulness are there, usually there's enough energy to kind of kick into, there's a, uh, it's wonderful to be here. You know, there is that other side. And then it's much, it's effortless or easier to be here because one's getting the feedback that one is um, appreciating the awesomeness of watching things appear and disappear. Mm-hmm. I remember when you were uh, doing your guided compassion meditation, um, I believe that you said two different things when we were trying to think of the person that we were sending compassion to. I think at one time you said what we usually say in relation to matter, like, you know, think of the person, see their face, be, you get a sense of their, who they are, you know. Um, but you also said attuned uh, into them. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means something really different. It, it means really empathetically connecting with your suffering. Yeah, in, in metta, um, you t- the, the traditional way of doing it is to uh, tune into the positive qualities of the person, the beautiful qualities, because the proximate cause of the loving-kindness is, is that tuning in to their good qualities. You don't turn into anything difficult about the person, because it's easier to feel that loving-kindness initially by, by tuning into the beautiful. In the compassion, you're tuning into the suffering. 
whether it's mental or physical or emotional. Uh, and so you are, you're empathetically getting a feeling for the suffering of that being. In, love, in the mudita or empathetic joy, you're doing the opposite. It's like tuning into a radio. A radio. You're tuning into the joy of that person. So they, there are, they are very different ways that you start those practices. The reason I get lost there is because there's juice. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, you know, I have thought about your story about the Maasai uh, warrior and the confronting the lion. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, well, you know, there was something out there to give him the energy to, to be there. But when I'm sitting, what's out there are my habits. Mm-hmm. Our identity, yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. then I get seduced by that, and it, and I don't have many times the strength to uh, put up my spear against it because it's it's not unusual. You know, facing a lion is pretty unusual, <laughs> but facing my habits is the thing I do all the time. So I don't have the the mindfulness to put my spear up. So I'm wondering again, mm-hmm. where where is the juice to get the mindfulness spirit? Okay, I'm right. watching this breath and then it's boring, so then I go into a fancy The juice sometimes, I mean sometimes it comes from having uh, enough patience to wait until the energy is strong enough to hold that spear you'll notice that you go up and down with energy. And when the energy is higher, usually you don't get caught in fantasy. It's just the way it is. And when, when you know, say you're sick, you know how when you're really sick, uh, the, the mind is much more cloudy and it's much more likely that one would want to be entertained. Um, the other way to work with it is to see, to be interested in what's the hidden layer underneath getting caught. And so, for, you know, for me, I've had a fantasy that recurred for 15 years. I mean, it's like there's some fantasies that are usually from boredom and they're not repeating. But you're describing habits, and habits repeat. And there's a reason why they repeat. There's something underneath it that we're not able to experience. And so for me, that recurring fantasy, after five years of meditation, I thought I was just the worst yogi in the world. Like, how can something repeat for five years? After ten years, it was like, maybe this is what happens. (laughs) You know, in meditation, maybe that you get to see after 15 years, you know, or 20, for me, 21, it went through changes, but underneath it was this incredible fear of rejection. And it, it, the first, first five or six years, it was this horrible fantasy, and it was unpleasant, and, you know, I couldn't believe I'd get caught in this horrible one. Like, you know, at least it could be pleasant, you know. And so I started kind of manipulating it a bit, and then I started, it started getting really pleasant. And that I got caught in it more <laughs> because I kind of created this pleasant one. But every time I would go to the body and look at how am I really feeling, 
You know, it takes a lot of honesty and it takes a willingness. Usually what's underneath them isn't pleasant. Whether it's just wanting a connection with somebody. You know, it's like the top ten, you know, there's only a few that really get us. It's saving the world, uh, uh, romance, career. I mean, it's just normal. This is the human thing. You get caught in these top few channels. It's just like, you know, on, on a radio. <laughs> you tune in and you get the number one hit song. For us, there'll be one or two or three number one hit songs. Uh, there is something underneath them. And in meditation, you just start getting more and more. First, it's the acceptance. This is what we get caught in. And then, and then slowly it's the willingness to feel what's underneath it. But it, that's where the juice is, and often it's not what we want to be happening. <laughs> neediness. I mean, you didn't come in here thinking that you were going to get liberated experiencing neediness. We think that we're going to get liberated experiencing peace. You see? I mean, and yet, the moment where one gets that space to let that neediness come and really let yourself feel it, that's the liberation, that's the peace. What's really happening? <laughs> but again, I think one also has to have that perspective that when the energy's higher, usually you have much more of an ability to put up that spear and you won't get so caught in it. And then you'll notice when the energy goes down, one's much more susceptible to getting caught. And that takes a lot of patience as well. I have one announcement to um, try to see if this would work for uh, sitting periods in this hall. Uh, for some people, people doing walking in the upper walking room while they're, they're sitting here, it's hard. Uh, and so I'd like to try for a week <laughs> if, if when there's actual scheduled sittings in here. Uh, for, to ask people not to do walking in the upper walking room because usually there's plenty of walking space other places because a lot of people are sitting in their rooms or here. Uh, so just see how that goes. And the other announcement is to uh, really when you come in for a sitting to stay here and, and not to be coming in and out of the hall. Uh, and, and if there's an emergency, of course, you're allowed to, to go. But generally, uh, if you come, you're supposed to stick it out. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.